Hello, all you reinventors. This is Leslie Jane Seymour from Cubby Club and also the founder of this podcast. I'm so excited because I get to interview today a longtime friend of mine, Deb Driver. And Deb was doing PR at Hearst when I did a couple of my magazines, Red Book, Mary Claire, um, was that it? I can't remember. I got so many different places. I did so many different magazines. Yes, but Red Book and Mary Claire, I believe that was it. And um, she was always such a great inspiration. She was a tough charging, you know, outspoken woman all the time, but had this wonderful Southern accent that kind of softened it all. And she's wickedly funny and she as you'll hear in the story uh, our interview here she pushed me to do better she pushed me to do things that i didn't think i could do that really helped me grow and change and those are the kind of people you want in your life who when you're like oh, i don't know if i want to dive off this diving board they go just jump and maybe sometimes they just give you a hip check and throw you in the water <laughs> anyway what I love about Deb is when it came time to figure out how to get off the hamster wheel, she had already had one foot down here in New Orleans. And what's interesting is I'd come down here a couple of times. We had come, been coming to New Orleans anyway, my husband and I, for 30 years on and off. Um, when we found that she was here too, we would play with her a little bit down here. But what I didn't really realize is how much what was happening here was her outlet, her sort of steam gauge for all the intense work that she does up in New York or did in New York. And when it came time to figure out what she was going to do next, what I love is she did not go the obvious routes at all. So I have this wonderful conversation with her, which I think you'll enjoy. And it's Definitely not the direction you could imagine. And the big question and the big answer is, how do you step off the hamster wheel with grace and finding the things that you really wanna do that still fulfill you, even though you love the hamster wheel, but it's time and you're overwhelmed and exhausted and it's time to do something different. How do you do it? A lot of us dream about doing what Deb did. Most of us are afraid to actually try it or attempt it, but she did it. And it involves a good stint in Paris. And it also involves completely changing what she does. She's become an incredible photographer and a publisher. So I'm not gonna tell you anything more. You have to listen to the podcast, be totally inspired, and then check out her wonderful book, which is called The French Leave, and you will understand what that means, um, which can be picked up at Faulkner Books in New Orleans. Have fun. So hello, my Deb. This is one of the most fun interviews I get to do because you're one of my oldest friends and colleagues and also a reinvented, reinventor inspirator. Well, we're also new news and we're also neighbors. So yeah. that's also great. I know. It's wonderful. So I want to talk to you today. You've done so much crazy, wonderful stuff, but I want to talk specifically about reinvention. 
And I always like to go back to your beginnings because there's always threads that people can follow and, and they can also pick up in their own lives um, about how one gets from A to Z with all the popping around between all the rest of the alphabet. And what I love is that you were a big super duper honcho in publishing at a big corporation. And now you are both a writer and a publisher among other things. But I think moving over into the publishing thing is really very interesting. So talk a little bit about where you grew up, where that great Southern accent came from. You know, I grew up, it's so funny because, um, you know, everyone says Southerners always go home. You know, Willie uh, Morris called it the great U-turn, you know, north toward home. You have to go a circle. And I grew up in a very different part of the South. I actually grew up in the, the sort of um, civil rights South, very much so. I was in the vortex. Uh, we were two hours from Selma, where, you know, there was a lot of uh, demonstrations in Mississippi. I grew up in Southern Alabama. Down in Florida, uh, Kennedy was fighting with Castro, and my grandmother was running through the house going, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. And then we had George <laughs> Wallace as our mayor, and then there's the Birmingham bombing. And a friend of mine, Diane McWhorter, ended up writing the, the seminal book on that, Carry Me Home. Took her 18 years to write it. She won the Pulitzer Prize and found out her father was involved. I mean, it was a very, you know, add to that, it was a dry county in most counties. It was a very tough time a lot of violence that children saw. And you also saw the Great Divide, you know, Johnson came in and did the Great Society. He did, you know, the Civil Rights Act. He did the First Environmental Act. Um, so it was it was really a splendid time to learn and to know that there were differences in the world. But when I decided to come South again, I wanted to go to the celebratory South. You know, I wanted to go where there's music and, you know, there's no better improvisation than jazz. I love the, the idea and the form of jazz, and in a way, it is a religion. So talk a little bit about, you went to college in Alabama? I did, I did. I went to the University of Alabama, which at that point was almost like a, a small private school. You had the individual schools, and, um, you know, I didn't care a lot about football. Um, Bear Bryant was there, but the great thing is we had winning teams, and they spread the money out throughout the school, which they still do. So we had magnificent programs and, you know, magnificent professors and um, I really, it was a good fit for me. I was in the very first class to have a master's degree in journalism. And I got to, I got to the classes and they said, well, here's your creative accounting, here's your economics, and here's your statistics. And I went, oh no, but I was very good at creative accounting. It, it, it was very good at <laughs> for me. And I, I later learned how to launder money when I had no problems in the corporation. <laughs> so then what did you go off to do? You left and went to DC, right? Yeah, I did. Um, I, I was down in Florida for three years and I worked for a newspaper, but this is when you couldn't be married or, or seeing someone and are engaged and they would not hire both people, they would hire the guy. So I said, I want more flexibility than that. So I, one summer I would do an internship with the newspaper, the next summer I did with an ad agency. And I did that the whole time, you know, I, did, I was able to work with Newsweek, a tiny paper, um, the Britain Standard, which is right next to the town where uh, Harper Lee grew up and, and Trim Cody grew up. So I knew all about that. And, um, you know, so I did that through all my summers. And then when I got out, I worked as a journalist for Gannett, but I knew they wouldn't hire me full time. So I went to an agency. I had great accounts. I had McDonald's and Westinghouse and International Paper. So that when I moved to, as a newlywed to DC and do no one, I was hired by Jody Powell to, to work at Ogilvy and Major. And what were and you doing? Were you doing, were you writing? Had, were you doing PR to start with? Or was, what was, was your? 
I was, I was one of the youngest 26 year old, I was 26 years old, I was wearing Laura Ashley with puff sleeves, and I was one of the youngest vice presidents ever, but I had great accounts. I had the French Ministry of Tourism. I had AT&T um, when they were giving a lot of money to the arts, so I would go to the Met and do a Gauguin exhibit, or I would go to the Kennedy Center and do another program. And I got to work with a lot of the actors, Liz and Bridge, and you know, a lot of the people who are, who are seniors in the theater today. So it was a really great time, but you know, I wanted to be the client. I didn't want to service the client after some time. I wanted to be the client. So I was hired um, also by NCI. That was my Harvard. Bill McGowan, the guy who had, you know, sued the baby bills and broken them up was there. And he was, he was a real renegade. He was an outlaw. And I've always liked to run with the outlaws. And he was very sort of counterintuitive. And then he, he died later on, about six years into it. And um, he'd had a heart transplant. And I remember I went home and I said to my husband, who the hell cares who your long distance carrier is? And then I went to work for, um, for Hearst. And I stayed there for 25 years. How did you make that segue into Hearst, though? Did was that and that was well, in New York? You, did you leave DC and decide I've got to go to a bigger place, or how did you yeah, make that? No, actually, I was hired by two people: Frank Bennett, who was, who was the CEO at that time, and Kathy Black, who ran the new, the magazine division. Kathy was working at, was running the Newspaper Trade Association, and I did that for a year, and that was great because I got to know the Salzburgers and the Goldens and you know the Coxes and. And, and everyone who's really running um, what were private media companies in those days, and I ended up working for Hearst, so it's a great fit. I, I've been very lucky in a way in the, my sort of my job. I've always kept my options open, and um, I only once took two jobs at one time and had to go back and tell one of them, no, I can't do it. So for 25 years, you were overseeing PR for the corporation and the magazines or just the corporation? I started, to, I started to do the magazines and the gentleman who did the whole company passed away. And so they interviewed all these people, you know, from the New York Times. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of digital back then, but all the, the great newspapers and, and companies. And I went into the office one day to the CEO to, to do some horrible story that I was trying to kill. And I, I said, you know, I'm going to use you as a hostage. I'm going to put you out there. We're going to get this killed. And it worked. And he hired me that day. <laughs> that sounds so like you too. <laughs> what I love about Deb always, all listeners should know, is that she has a wicked sense of humor. She's incredibly funny and brings up references that nobody else brings up, which is really what I love. And that you teach me things all the time about things I've never, ever heard of. So what was your you connection? Never, Go ahead. You remember the mom phone calls that we do when we, when we, we both first moved here? We call each other at seven thirty in the morning, and you yes. say to me, "Mom, we haven't had the hurricane talk." Yes, and I, and I would and I would call you, and I'd say, "Mom, we haven't had the, you know, the um, what, what was it, the recycling talk or whatever yes. the subject was." Yes, yes, exactly. And um, we've traveled before, Deb. I'll just so everybody listening knows that um, one time when a celebrity bailed on me when I was running. Mary Claire magazine and I was supposed to go cover the tsunami in Thailand and the story was that all the men had bailed out after the tsunami which created horrific death and destruction and killed tons and tons of parents and left all these children as orphans the men had run away and in Thailand the women had all banded together to rebuild the country and so it was a perfect Mary Claire story. I got myself a celebrity to go. We booked the whole thing at the last minute she bailed out. Deb was um, 
you know, helping me figure out how do you position this? How do you sell it out there? Um, what kind of story we should do that we could run later? And Deb was the one who said to me, you should just go anyway and, and write it. <laughs> I was like, what? Are you kidding? And she was totally right. And what was wonderful, she talked her boss into coming with me. And so we had this amazing life-changing story um, that we both went and did um, to that trip in Thailand. That, that was an incredible moment in my life. How about yours, Deb? Yeah, you know, I remember two things. I remember all of it, but I remember two things particularly. I remember us looking as we were climbing up the hill in the van, looking for signs of the tsunami. And I'd only been through hurricanes, which were similar. And I was looking at the trees. I was looking to see if the trees had been, you know, scarred and, and, and the leaves were down. And, you know, was there a trail of destruction? And that's how I knew we were getting closer. And the other thing I remember is um, seeing the children get adopted. Remember the last day we were there, the families? They didn't want the children to leave the country. So the aunts and the uncles and the cousins came in to adopt them. The little ceremonies yes. they had. Yes. And I believe the I believe the president was wealthy. So he he had promised them all college at that point. So it was a really great moment. Yes. It and ended up three days after. It was very soon. Yes. And and the talking about the trees coming up, I thought you were going to say the thing that stuck in my mind as we were taking that van towards Phuket. Phuket was one of the islands that was right. completely devastated and it had a lot of tourists on it because it's a big tourist island. They didn't see the tsunami coming. A lot of them were out on the beach playing and their kids were playing in the sand. And as we approached, we saw those trees with the Polaroids back in those days, there were Polaroids or pictures um, stapled to trees of kids saying, if you see this kid, here's my phone number. It was totally, yeah. completely yeah. devastating because they had all left um and their children were no longer with them i i remember to this yeah. day i get goosebumps about that but it was a very intense story and um it was a it was a big writing project for me for the first time so i was very grateful yeah. to to you for forcing me to go ahead and do it anyway which was great so let's talk about um why you came to New Orleans and then why you became a publisher. But let's talk about you. You've been spending your time between New York and New Orleans. And, and the reason why I talk about this, there's so many people who are trying to figure out if changing location is part of their reinvention. And in many cases, yeah. it is. For me, coming down here was such a huge part of my reinvention. Um, how did you feel? You know, I, I, I look for certain things and, I, you know, I fell in love with New Orleans a long time ago, probably in my 20s. And, um, you know, I ended up getting a house around the time of Katrina, actually, and keeping it for about 16 years. Now I have another carriage house and it's my second home here. But, but now I'm here, I, I, I chose to, you know, I wanted to, I, I love tourists, I love being in New York City, but I wanted to go to Paris and live for a year, which I did. That's what my recent book, my book is about, French Lit, Lit Leave. But I also wanted to, um, to just have that transition because Paris is slower than New York. Every place is slower than New York. Um, and then come down here, and this is the most French place in America. And since I'm a Francophile, I wanted very much to um, to experience, you know, sort of French Louisiana because it's so charming. I wanted something exotic because I think New York is a special place and, and I loved it, but I was also ready to just do something different. And, um, and I love going to Paris because they don't multitask. You know, they don't do anything on Sundays. They have shorter shop hours, but there's a there's a very sort of um, leisurely sort of, I love that 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 wonderful line by Flaubert 
Uh, live your life like the bourgeois so that you can be creative and violent in your work. Yeah, it's a, I mean, well, that's why I used to go to Europe to get my head on straight because driving into Rome and you would see the Colosseum and you would say thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people have passed by here and they've come and they've gone. And that's what's going to happen to me too. So live your life for now. Don't live it for tomorrow. It was always a reminder and I agree with you about New Orleans. It's the closest to living in France you can get without leaving the U.S., even though they destroy well, French here. <laughs> yeah, but they do. They do on purpose to see if you're a tourist. It's sort of a wink wink. <laughs> but you know what I love is, you know, when you're coming back from your, your wonderful vacation and you think, God, I drank a bottle of wine a day. You know, I did this, I did this. I, I didn't think about anything. I was so relaxed. You know, you want to keep that feeling that you never do. Well, the closest thing I could get to that was here. Yes. People really, there's a joie to be here. And there's yes. a sense of, you know, people talk about food. You talk about your next meal. Yes. Um, you know, I've, I've been places where they don't even talk about what's on the table at the moment. And, and who would want to live like that, you know? Um, yes. But I love, I, I love, I love it if you're in New Orleans, if you have a horn, you know, an instrument, or you have a, um, a spoon in your hand, you're a celebrity. You're about VIP. We're very proud of the food and the music. And one yes. year for a donation for preservation hall i got to buy five tubas i was so excited to give those kids tubas yes that's and it, fun you know it has a, Euro a european tubas. kind of slowness i mean that's why they call it the big easy i think it's more than european i think it's sort of combined with the caribbean kind of slow down take it easy you know because that's the history exactly i mean the, the secret is is as buttoned up as any other place and they're fast here too but, um, but, you know, there's a semblance of, you know, the palm trees. And I love, I just love the salt. And, you know, this book that I just wrote, believe it or not, and I'm just going to ruin it for you, the very last line is an homage to that embraceable air of humidity. Yes. Now, well, let's talk about becoming a publisher. So you've been in PR your whole life. And yep. let's talk about why you started writing books first of all and then why you started publishing them and what you had to do to get that to be done because there are a lot of writers in my world here there are a lot of writers um, listening I don't think a lot of writers think about becoming a publisher as well and I think that's a really interesting move well one you know one thing that I noticed right away when I was wanting to write is you know I'm very I'm very Lucy Ricardo in my approach I mean I really am I'm, I'm more like, let's do this. Let's get into show business. We'll just do it this way. Ethel, come with me. And, you know, Rick, Ricky is the guy who's always, no, 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 don't be the Ricky. And, you know, you don't have to know every answer. So if I, I, I find that even with publishing, you know, doing this, I knew just enough about the business to know what I didn't like and what I thought was archaic. So what I did was I, I said, well, if I, if I put my, their hat on, the, the booksellers, what are they going to want? And that's what I gave them. And, and it's worked beautifully. And maybe it's because I don't know too much, you know, and I'm willing to be creative. I like making my own way. I'm not a joiner and I don't like rules. You know, I have a code of ethics, but other than an intuition, and I think that's all you need. But it was, you and had I'm, to take a bunch of steps, Deb, in order to set yourself up as a publisher. I remember you talking to me about finding, you were finding a publishing course at University of Alabama that you thought you might need to take. I wasn't, I'm not sure whether you did or you didn't and how yeah, you actually set like up your press. Can you kind of give that specific yeah. and talk about what your press is? 
Yeah, we, we know our, my job at Hertz was very broad, um, and um, I, um, you know, I we actually we actually made some books, you know, that had Library of Congress on them. They had ISBN numbers. We did a book with Norman Foster when he built that beautiful tower. You know, we did a book on Hearst's uh, media empire at certain junctures, so 50th anniversary, 70th, 80th, whatever. And so, you know, and, I, and we also had book divisions. I had friends who worked in publishing. I had worked in newspapers. I'd started out as a print person. And, and you know, I, I just, you know, I'm a late bloomer by, just by nature. So I knew that I would do this later on. I was talking to one of her trustees. And what I really wanted to do was play. I wanted to play at the things that, that, that I liked. And I've always liked, I remember Wendy Watcherson said once, you've got to use both sides of your brain. You know, they say creative people are like this, business people are like this. She said, no, use both sides of your brain. So I always like words and I always like pictures. So, I, you know, I have a master's in journalism and I've always used those, you know, courses. I've always worked with the editors in every job I've been in. So I was never very far away from publishing, even though I might've been on the, you know, management side. I, I was a suit that I really hung out with the gunslingers and that was a lot of fun. So I learned a lot from the editors. You know, I just, I couldn't learn enough. It was, and I worked with some great people, you know, all the greats, Helen Burley Brown and, you know, Liz Tavares and you and, you know, Terry McDonald and Pamela Fiore. I mean, it was just, it was like, you know, superstars. And I learned something from everyone. And, um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a huge buyer of books. I love to read. I unpacked 91 boxes of books when I moved recently. And those are just the illustrated books. So I'm a big, you know, I'm, I, I am my own customer. But how did you actually decide and you had to make you made I remember when you made your design for your logo and you created yeah. well, Crescent City Press yeah. and and how did you decide yeah. that they and you and you have other books um, in the works that are are they all yours or do you have other people coming in? No, here's my here's my model. I will do one book. I'll launch it with my book and then I'll do three others. You know, I'll do a person that's been published. I want to do maybe artists. I might, might do poets. I might do essays. You know, I might do um, customized books. I might do, you know, I spent some time in the, some of the French bookstores and American bookstores when I was there. And, and just in my own house, I have like a, a library of creative, you know, all kinds of books, books that are out of print, books that Ralph Lauren might have done 104 for his fashion show. You know, I have books that other people have never seen. I have, you know, Cecil Beaton's diaries. So I have a lot of research here. And, um, and I just think, you know, there's, there's so many topics you could cover. I have a list of 25 people I could do books on. Um, and I, I, I really watched Norman Foster's wife, Elena. She has something called the Ivory Press. And even though it's a media company, she called it Press. And I thought it was rather classic. And so I looked for a name. And there was a security company here that let that name pass. And so I took it. And I remember I went to Alexa Pulitzer, who's a designer here. There's so much talent here local, it's amazing. And I said, help me do this logo. And so she did a, a, like a half moon. Crescent oh, city. she did. I, I didn't know that. Oh, I love Alexa. Yeah, and, That's great. Yeah. And, and, she, and, and I said, Alexa, this looks like Procter & Gamble. She goes, who's that? And I said, <laughs> I said well, let's do interlinking C's. And I said, there's a chance we will get sued by Charles and Camilla. But this is what we're going to do. And it's beautiful. It looks like a piece of jewelry. Yeah, um, it's beautiful. beautiful. And, and, you know, I said that we will publish authors, you know, painters, poets, prose writers, and upstarts, people who've never been published before and never even thought about it, you know. I want to push them forward because there's so many opportunities here. There's so much creativity here. Yes. It's, it's, there's, something about, there's something about the air here. I don't know what it is. Um, there was a guy at Harvard when I did my first book. He said, I had this crazy idea. He said, 
their special places and they have four Ds. It's drinking, drumming, dancing, and decadence. And he said, there are parts of Africa, there are parts of the Caribbean, and there's New Orleans. Yeah. And you know, maybe he's all. Maybe there's something about Congo Square. You know, I know that a lot of musicians come out of Treme. You know, there are traditions here. Yes. So talk about your current book, The French Leave. Talk about what that title means. Uh, obviously, it has a okay. double entendre, but talk about how it relates yes. to you, too, and your story in there. Okay. All my books have a double entendre, and here's what I do. I come up with the title, and I heard John Grisham say this once, and I think it's true. Your outline is your table of contents. If that's set and good, you are, you're on your way. You don't waste a lot of time. I write the first and the last sentence to every chapter. It gives me a place to go and to end with. And once I do that, I can write the book. And so, and I also taught myself to be a fast writer because I, I have no, not the luxury of being a slow writer because I'm always doing it on the weekends. So, um, so I thought I had gotten the writing down, but I started, like everyone, every other person we know, I started taking photos with Instagram, you know, and my, and my cell phone. And, and people said, oh, your photos are really great. And I said, yes, throw a rock at a person who's on Instagram who has great photos. And people kept saying this to me. And I thought, you know, they're just being nice. I mean, my photos are okay, but look at this guy. Look at this person. You know, look at this. Because I always try to follow different people. I mean, I follow Amanda Harlock at Chanel. She's amazing. And she had me some filters that are just beautiful. And so um, I was taking these two pictures when I was in France in Bordeaux. And one was looking out a window of a library. And it was like, it looks like a Trump lawyer, a beautiful. And the other one that had this incredible, it's what we call elegance and decadence here, and this modeled wall that was this beautiful flawless curtain over it. And when those two pictures came back to me, I said, you know what, maybe I am a photographer. <clears throat> I think you are an amazing wow. photographer and you still haven't shown me all those ways that you use those filters, but I'm gonna squeeze that out of you one day. You have to give me a course, you're an amazing photographer. It's beautiful. And that's what's in the book is all your beautiful photography and where you're comparing sometimes New Orleans and France as well. Explain what the French leave is, why you do okay, it, because you do it, <laughs> and yeah. what it is, because so, that's okay. also a reinvention. Here's, yeah, so here's, you know, I always do a link, what I call a link, link in my books, like I had a double rainbow in my first book, you know, and one of them was the arches, the Armstrong Park arches, another was, you know, some wrought iron that said Louisiana out on the fairgrounds. So with this one, I have a couple of double um, entendres. I have um, the French, the book starts with the French leave. If I didn't like the situation, I was I was a really good cut and run artist. I had perfected the quit. I could get out of there faster than anybody. And so the French leave is where I was at this lovely dinner uh, for the Ogden Museum. And I was sitting there with, you know, Helen Mirren and all these different actors. And we all went to power our nose. It had gotten rather late. And we all went to power our nose and we went to the parking lot and we left. And it's like, you know, long night, got to get up tomorrow. And so you pretend that you're just going to step away and then you don't come back. And, and that's just sort of ducking out without talking to your host. And the, the I did that, but in New Orleans, there's something called a Creole goodbye. And that's where they don't leave. You know, you have a dinner party and you're like- And you they never leave? Before. I've experienced that. <laughs> and, and, the five, and the five people they bring with them, I call that fishes and loaves, you know? It, it's like, it's like, could you leave me? It's like two in the morning. Let's just have one more, you know? I'm telling the story about my uncle, you know? And so I, I, I I start the book with the French label about get me out of here. And I went to Paris, get me out of here and take me to Paris. And let me think about things. And then I, I end it with the Creole goodbye because I wanted to put my foot down somewhere and, and have a, you know, have a footprint. And, 
and have a home. And this has been my home. And I think I've made a great choice. And the, is the French leave, I couldn't quite tell, is it a real thing or you made it into a real thing? What do you mean? The, is it a historical real thing that French people do that or you just made it into that? No, it's from the 1800s. Oh, from the, from the 1800s. 1800s, okay. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's used in, in many parts of Europe, you know, they, they call it the French leave over there also. Oh. It means basically that, it means that you're, I mean, I mean, I, the night that I'm talking about, I left and um, evidently the host of the table did the same thing, very famous couple that said, oh, we're so sorry we had to leave. And I said, yeah, you know, I waited for you. Why didn't you come back? Of course, I'd left, you know, an hour before that. <laughs> oh, I love it. And so do you want to talk a little bit about you, you were leaving your job as well? So it coincided with that, that thought process yeah. and also leaving a very high paced, overwhelming burnout kind of situation, trying to find something that was easier going. So now, again, it almost had a triple entendre, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I loved working and I loved having a career and I was very lucky. You know, I got to work with everyone, presidents and, you know, the Barbara Streisands and medical people and Dr. Oz and Oprah, and, you know, goes on and on. But, um, but you know, I, I thought to myself, you know, I said to one of we have a trustee who's about 90 years old and he's really a renaissance man. And I said to him, I said, Gil, I said, do you know what I really want to do? He goes, what? I said, I want to be a dilettante. I never got to do that. I was too buttoned up and too focused. I want to go back and just play that word again. I just want to go back and dabble and just make myself happy. I don't care if anybody else likes the books I write or the photos I take. I just want to do it for myself and I want to play. I want to be a dilettante. And he looks at me and he goes, I knew that about you. And hilarious. Because so you've always been so responsible. Yes. Yes, exactly. And I think a lot of, maybe let's talk about that contrast and the how-to. Did you have to sock away a lot of money in order that you could do this? Was it only because you were at a certain level in, in your financial stability? Because no, that comes, no. No? Okay, talk about it. I don't think so. I, I think, you know, there's, having not enough money is, is, is probably not a good thing, but I don't think you have to be rich. And in, in New York, as you know, you can make a gazillion dollars and you'd still be a church mouse. Um, compared to someone on Wall Street. But when I was 26 years old, you know, running with those older people and the very young vice president with my Laura Ashley, the puff sleeves, I thought to myself, they're never going to own me. I'm going to walk when I want to walk. And I left Ogilvy and Major the day they went public. I left MCI the day they were bought, cashed in, left and went somewhere else and had a job. So, so I was able to make my own decisions. And I worked for, you know, I worked for Jody Powell. I worked for Bill McGowan. I worked for Kathy Black. I worked for Frank Bennick. You know, I was with Oprah. I mean, I had great bosses. I learned a lot. And, and I was always growing. So I could stay in a place like Hertz for 25 years because they, they kept growing. But, you know, I really wanted to go back and, and, and sort of do abstract. So for mm -hmm. me, that wasn't word coloring because I'm so bad at it. But it was really taking the single photography image. And I, I've done documentaries. I've done video um, on my own time. But I love the single image and what it, what it tells you. It's like Cartier-Bresson, you know, he, he never really cut his art, he just sort of clipped it. It was very good with his hand and his eye and just captured it on the street. And I find that, you know, I've taken so many photos. I have probably about 6,000 photos in my queue. Wow. I probably took about 3,000 the year I was in France. And, wow. you know, it's, I'm taking this for me and I'm playing. And then I go back and I go, wow, that was pretty good. I can believe I did that. Yes. So let's, as we close here, we're about to come to our end. What tips 
would you give to anybody who's thinking about doing what you did, reinventing themselves out of some big corporate job into publishing, say, their own kind of thing? What are the do's and don'ts well, that was, you know was, you find vital? I was, I was always, I don't know how I knew this. Both my parents were a corporation and my, my great-grandmother had four businesses. So maybe I got this through osmosis. But if you're not happy in the job, leave immediately. You know, because it, life is too short. And and also, you know, I worked hard, but I also traveled every year. I'd go to a couple of places because I thought, you know, you don't want to save all this up for the end. And then with, you know, I figured out that I, you should have your own funds, you know, just enough that no one can tell you what to do and you can do what you want to do. I think it's all about freedom. It's a little bit about planning, but it's also about opportunity. If you have a chance to go, go. Did you say you should have your own fund? Is that what you said? Or fund? Well, I didn't want to say this on the air, but when I was 26, I started a fuck you fund. Good. And I can do whatever I want. At 26, you knew that? Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Awesome. And, and I, wasn't, I, you know, I wasn't wealthy, but I just had enough that I could get on an airplane when I wanted to, you know? Well, that's big enough. That's good something that someone needs to know. And also if anybody who's younger, who's listening to this podcast, start your fuck you fun now. I think most people don't exactly. come, they don't come to that realization until they're, you know, well past the point where they can start funding it, even though you can, no matter what age you are. Start now, please, everybody. So where um, can everybody find the French Leave book and follow you on Instagram? Well, I'm at, I'm at Deborah Schreiber on Instagram, one word, um, spell like Maria Schreiber, S-H, River. But here's the other thing. I wanted to do something really different. I wanted to make a statement. No offense to Amazon, but I decided big box is not part of our picture. We're Pappy Van Winkle. These are archival books. They're collector's books. They're bespoke. They're something you're not going to always find in a bookstore. You might find it in an art shop or a museum. So I decided that I would make a statement and I would, you know, New Orleans has a, a, a really a large number of independent bookstores. So if all my New York friends are calling going, where can I get the book? And I said, well, you have to buy it from a New Orleans independent bookstore. Because the, because the book and the photos are about Paris and New Orleans, those are the only places you can buy them. Ralph and the Ritz Hotel carry it in Paris. And here, every private bookstore will carry it. And a couple of the shops like Sood, Scriptura, Hazelnut, you know, they'll also carry it. The museum bookstores will carry it. And, you know, it's, it's their gig. They're going to sell it to you. My personal list, someone called them when it's 50 for Christmas. I said, well, we're going to get a scripture and they're going to get them for you. Great. Wonderful. Thank you so it's much, fun. Deb. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Deb Shriver. I think it's such an interesting segue into a different way of life, but coming at it from an unexpected point of view. I hope it's inspirational to you, especially if you're on the hamster wheel right now and are dreaming of getting off, are dreaming of just stepping away, are dreaming of a total change. It can be done. It doesn't happen overnight. It may be a segue. As you can see with Deb, she had her foothold in New Orleans for quite a long time before she made it her home. But that's part of the valve. You can create a valve for yourself long before you're ready to pull the 
record on the whole thing. I think that's the greatest lesson here is it doesn't have to be overnight. It can happen slowly but deliberately and give you great reward as well. So I hope you enjoy that conversation. And if you want to learn more about reinvention, I hope that you will sign up for the podcast. If you have friends who are learning about reinvention, please pass the podcast on to them. We are now over 150 episodes and 100,000 downloads, and we want to keep growing and spreading the word that it's never too late to reinvent. And come on over to Cubby Club and join us there. We've got all kinds of content. We have all kinds of courses and classes where we teach you more about the mechanics of reinvention because you're never too old to start over. And sometimes you just have to. So I hope you enjoy this and I will see you next time.